podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome everyone to Nesson Dorma, your chat about 80s and 90s football. We return for our latest float in the soothing waters of football for another time after spending a few episodes in the most recent edge of our time period, right up in the late 90s. But this episode, we're quantum leaping all the way back to the very beginning um, to talk about Aston Villa. That'll be coming up later on. Um, I'm Lee, obviously, and joining me in this episode are Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary. Hello, Lee. How are you? Oh, very well. And also, Mike Gibbons is here. Hi, Mike. Oh, boy. <laughs> trying to do a quantum leap oh, thing. Yeah, very uh, good. Yes, I got yeah. it. I got Morning, it, Mike. Guys. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> we are, you can get in touch with us at Ness and Dorma Pod on the Twitter, or we can get in touch with me. You can actually get in touch with me directly through at Blood and Mud on Twitter, which is my rugby account, but that is basically me if you want to get hold of me. How do people get hold of you, Gary? At Na- Gary Naylor 999 on Twitter. And should you want to, you know, Make Mike feel better about that joke. How'd you get in touch with him? Uh, at Mike W. Gibbons, if you want to critique my uh, <laughs> crap attempts at comedy. Uh, we're on Acast, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on anywhere you want. You can find podcasts, really. If you put Ness on Dorma Football Podcast into Google, there'll be numerous services that we're on now that you can you can use your favourite one. We're also, crucially, on patreon.com slash Nesson Dorma, which is where you can come and give us a bit of support so we can keep this ship afloating in these waters of nostalgia. Thanks to everyone who supports us already, but we've had quite a few people join up to support us in the past few weeks. I did make the point that we're actually ahead of time on our recording schedule, so we might put an episode out, which is after when you signed up, but it'll you signed up after we recorded as well. This does sound like Quantum Leap now, doesn't it? But basically, <laughs> what I'm saying is you will definitely get to it. It's just that you may have signed up after we recorded, but before the release date. So don't Lee, worry. Are you, are, are you podcasting here from inside the DeLorean car here? <laughs> yeah, I wish. It was a great documentary about that on BBC iPlayer at the minute, actually, the DeLorean. If you fancy, a fantastic book called On a Clear Day You Can See General Motors. If you want to look at corporate dysfunctionality, <laughs> John DeLorean's book is fantastic. So there are two ways you can support us on patreon.com and, and slash Nessundorma. You can do a five quid friend of the club tier where you get a lovely mention on here. And the people we've had who've joined up for that are Mark Hinchcliffe, Barry Kelly, Josh Turnbull, Harry Taylor, Neil Kelly, and Neil French. Thank you very much. It means a hell of a lot that we can keep this going, that you want to support us in that way. So And we couldn't do it without you. So thank you very much indeed. We also have... The £10 tier, which is for people who want to be kind of club ultra super members who also get us having a bit of a go at describing what kind of 80s and 90s footballer or how we imagine you would have fit into the 80s and 90s footballer world. So first of all, we've got Neville Wall. What do we think about Neville Wall, Mike? Uh, Well, I've written a little bio for him here. Um, So I I thought Neville Wall would be a midfield schemer. One of those... uh, kind of guys, overlooked initially in England, um, who went to the North American Soccer League and made his name there with the New York Cosmos, uh, doing all with Pele and Giorgio Canale's hard running while they shook their hangovers off from the previous night at Studio 54. And uh, yeah, emboldened by that, then he returned to England for a 
carousel around the Midlands clubs, you know, Wolves, West Brom, Coventry, <laughs> Birmingham, six England B caps, uh, and a reputation as a classy operator, but bemusingly overlooked for uh, Bobby Robson's full England squad. That's my, that's Neville Wall for me. Uh, well, there you go. I, I think Shinaglio and Pale have done well getting out of Studio 54 with just a hangover. But um... yeah. The thing with um, with Neville is it's hard not to do word association. So I was thinking, right, don't do a fullback and don't do a Welsh international <laughs> leg- <laughs> legendary goalkeeper. So. Um, also, the £10 tier this, this time is Kevin Alexander. Um, I've got five foot two inch forward Kevin Alexander formed one of the league's most visually striking partnerships of the 90s at Stockport County with six foot seven Kevin Francis. Known as the Kevs, they were fodder. <laughs> they were fodder for fanzines and tabloid picture editors over a five year period, period that they were together. Alexander then moved to Chesterfield and played with a man of average height and therefore lost his passion for the game and now actually is retired and has a mail order cupcake business in Macclesfield. I'm calling a VAR on that one, Lee, because I think that's actually true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so thank you very much, Neville, and thank you very much, Kevin. It's really, I hope you'd, let us know whether that matches you at all. Are you short, Kevin? I don't know, I'm sorry if you're not. Um, Again, what I will say is we're catching up on a lot of having to look through people who signed up. So if we have missed anybody, please don't be frightened of shouting out via the Patreon messaging service because you do get that um, access as a patron. You can message us directly on there. So thank you very much indeed. That's patreon.com slash Nessundorm if you fancy a bit of that. Okay, so we always start with a player of the pod, do we not, these days? And this time around, we've picked um, Manchester United, Everton and many others Ukrainian stroke Lithuanian stroke Russian stroke Soviet winger Andrei Kanchelskis. Who wants to start? Gary, why don't you give us some thoughts on on, on Andrei Kanchelskis? Well, I'll start with his full name, actually, which makes him sound like a, a character out of Chekhov who would walk into some country house and sigh and plonk themselves down because his name is Andrei Ant. Tanasovich Kanchelskis. And one of the reasons I'm starting with that is because back in kind of 1990, 1991, he was an extremely exotic creature. Um, there weren't that many uh, players, uh, overseas players, you know, one hesitates to say British players because there's always been lots of Irish uh, playing in, in English league and, and, of course, any number of Scots really since the English League's uh, founding. But I think there were only seven or eight uh, players. In fact, I've got them here. Uh, He was one of only 13 non-British or Irish players to play on the opening weekend of the Premier League, along with Jan Steschkal, who he... Jan Steschkal, yeah. Steschkal. And then um, some more familiar names, Peter Schmeichel, uh, Robert Washika, Roland Nielsen, Eric Cantona, who remembers him, Hans Sagers, John Jensen, Anders Limpar, Gunnar Haller, Craig Forrest, Mike, Michelle Vonk, and Ronnie Rosenthal. But you know, each of those you could kind of place, you know, there were the efficient moneyball Scandinavians. There was the Gallic shrugging Eric Cantona. Um, there was uh, there was Ronnie Rosenthal with his sh- uh, coat hanger shoulders. Um, but Kanchelskis was just this exotic creature um, who was... Russian, and we all called them Russians, no matter where in the Russian Empire they came from. His background was Ukrainian, as many Russian footballers of the seventies and eighties were. Um, but there, he he and he 
I wouldn't say literally exploded onto the scene because that sets me up for for private eye, but he exploded into sort of football consciousness because he had this kind of extreme pace and this running style, slightly sort of crabbed running style. And you couldn't really see where it came from because physically, you know, he was no Usain Bolt. He wasn't some um, giant of a man or or obvious kind of uh, sprinter uh, who who was gliding over the ground. He just had this extraordinary ability to sort of kick the ball past a fullback. And no matter where the ball ended up, he, he would get on the end of it. And he was so lightning quick. Um, he also had a, a, a very decent shoulder drop so, so he could cut inside and outside. And I think he was a, an early um, reverse winger in some ways. And he, he cut inside and shot for goal. And I think we'll come... We might come to it a little later. He was, I hadn't seen so many of these before, although we're going to come to one in the second part of the pod, of uh, a wide player who who provided a genuine goal threat in that he would come inside and, and shoot. Previously, wide players had been more like uh, Dave Thomas. Um, and we've got an interview with, with Dave Thomas on uh, Ness and Dormer back there in the uh, archive, who would usually stay wide and look to hit the byline and cross the ball into a centre forward. And Kanchelskis wasn't like that. He was uh, he was a man who cut inside and, and shot for goal. Um, but the, the kind of main early thoughts of Kanchelskis is that we all sort of sat up and took notice and thought, you know, what... W- what is this? This is a kind of new kind of player. He was a wild card. And then the, the rumours started circulating, of course, about his uh, his past and all kinds of rumours about his service in the Soviet army and, and um, all of this kind of, of stuff. And it was in the early days when we were becoming familiar with the fact that the breakup of the Soviet Union had led to some, shall we say, interesting characters to uh, <laughs> to assume power and and money and um when it comes to entourages and uh difficult agents well uh andre kanchelskis could show paul pogba a thing or two i'll just say that uh, we'll come to that later on so that's kind of my initial thoughts on uh, on kanchelskis that we can explore is his exotic that, otherness that um, point about where he came from gary is a, a an interesting one because and mike you may know more about this as a united man um he was signed from Shakhtar Donetsk for six hundred and fifty grand in nineteen ninety one, which was not a small amount of money. And apparently, from a video, so the story goes. Have you heard that one? Yeah, it's from an under twenty ones game, I think uh, that he was playing for the USSR, and he was actually he was recommended to Ferguson by Runa Hauger, apparently, who oh, was right. the agent who was famous. I'm, I'm not saying there's any involvement in this in the Kanchelskis <laughs> transfer, but he was involved, you know, with the George Graham, mm. um, you, know, you know, the whole Bungs thing about sort of four years um, later. And yeah, coming out of the Soviet Union, which was still limping on as an entity until the end of 1991. So Kanchelskis signed in the March of 91, uh, obviously no transfer windows then. So a complete unknown, really. Um, and arrived at Old Trafford, at the end of the 1991 season, uh, just before the United won the European Cup Winners' Cup, actually. And it was after they won that trophy, Ferguson said to his coaches, you know, I'm going to raise the stakes. Uh, you, you know, this club has to start winning the league. So that's what Kanchelskis uh, walked into, really. And uh, 
Gary makes the point about his pace and his directness. And I was thinking this morning, actually, how how good he would be in football now, Kanchelskis. He seems quite futuristic, I think, in the way he plays here. And I think he's the difference between a winger that can go past someone and get a yard to get a crossing and one that can just beat you and cut cut straight in on goal. I mean, he's so quick. Um, he must have been the quickest player in the league at the time. I can't think of one that would have been quicker. Possibly, I'm sure he was quicker than Giggs, who was uh, uh, maybe the only other quickest player at United. But The the only one that I've <clears> seen, I, I mean, I saw Kanchelskis live quite a few times for Everton, and he was, it, it, it's impossible to say, and you know, someone's going to, Come out and say that they, you know, that the the quickest player in in football is Phil Jagielka. I think one year when they timed him with mm. GPS, which uh, gives the uh, gives my opinion. It was always the, Keith Curl in this period, wasn't it? Yeah, the accuracy of such matters. But he looked he looked yards quicker than anybody else on the field. I mean, not you know, he he was like a, a an international athlete in a in, on a school's um, sports day. He was that much quicker. Than, than anybody else. The only player I've seen who possibly was as quick as Kanchelskis was, and I think we talked about him a pod or two ago, was was the early iteration of Nicholas and Elka at Arsenal, who could just run away from defenders mm. and find himself in five yards of space in the in the penalty box, having started a run on the halfway line. He's the, he's the only one. I, I think he was quicker than, than Giggs. He was more explosive. Uh, as a runner, and it came from nowhere because you know Giggs glides, and you can see the natural athlete that's in in Giggs. Kanchelskis was just this this kind of middleweight boxer who could mm. run extremely quickly and then finish with a resting heart rate of about thirty five. He had that um, amazing that thing I always find amazing about players that level of pace who run without moving their arms. Yeah, he can. He used to yeah. run with the ball with his with his elbows slightly stuck out, didn't he? And his arms dangling down. But moving like you've like a pace at which you've never seen, you know this, which is with the ball as well, which is is absolutely remarkable. And he didn't have this is going to sound stupid, but he didn't have obvious dribbling ability. Or am I being is that unfair? Because he just seemed to go incredibly quick with a few touches of the ball, and the pace did most of it. I might be doing him down a bit here, but Mike, what do you think? Um. Well, I think that's fair. I mean, it's. I think it's because he knew he was quicker than. Fit. It's that tap and go <laughs> yes. thing, isn't it? And, Why uh, do you need a step over when I can just do this? Yeah, yeah and it's uh, you know it, it would almost be like the little road runner cloud of dust behind him, and you know he just <laughs> he'd just be um be gone. But I mean, what that pace gave United was it um off both wings. Then they had him and Giggs, and it it helped turn them into this great quick counter attack inside. And one of the great calling cards of those early. Fergie teams was the ability to win the ball back and then just get it in the net within say 10 seconds I mean he scored one of the most revered and iconic goals in United's history it's in the 3-1 game with Norwich in April of 93 uh, where United go to Carroll Road and win 3-1 and they were going sort of nose to nose with Norwich and Villa for the title then as well and it's a sort of four pass move from their own six yard area that ends up with Konchalskis going around the goalkeeper and uh, and rolling it in, and he was part of all that. I mean, it's, as a player, it's at United. He's a, he's a real cult hero, Kanchelskis. I mean, I think the nearest equivalent I can think to for such a short time, because he was at United for four seasons, um, 
and if you think about that short amount of time, but the impact and the long tail in terms of the legacy, it's probably Yap Stam is the, like, the nearest mm. one I could think of because you know he was there for three seasons, that, but he's but he's involved in so much that's so fondly remembered. Kinshasa. It's obviously you know United's first title for twenty six years, uh, the club's first double. So he he was a key part of this whole. Um, you know, I guess revolution that took place in those early uh, Premier League, I think, and I think that's why. In my, he he was there a lot less time than I than than the presence of him at United in my mind suggests, and I think that plays into what you just said because looking back at this, I kind of knew the numbers, but he was like realistically from when he signed and then when he actually came into the team, it was three years, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, as it's a solid of... presence, and you think, God, was that all it was? Because he was just like you said, so hugely associated with the club in that period, and and seems like he should have stayed longer. I mean, my my best mate is huge United fan, season ticket and everything, and he was the full United top and furry Soviet hat thing. He wore that mm. for about two years because he just loved him, and I think yeah, it's 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 like he should have stayed longer, but he didn't. But in a way, that makes it almost more almost better. I don't know. Yeah, well, the, even, so the, that, sorry, the 92-93 season, he wasn't in the team that much, actually. So, so Sharp played uh, more than him. So they rotated Sharp, Giggs and Kinshelskis. And he was fined for not anyway. refusing to play for the reserves, wasn't he, during that period? You know, There were like rumblings of what was to come quite early when you look at it now. That when Sharp yeah, you got could... fit again and then Ferguson said, you've got to play in the reserves, he said, I'm not. So he, so, so he fined Kinshelskis. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, I mean, there's a point. Was so his, his last two seasons. I mean, he was just he was so good in those two years. I mean, you couldn't really leave him out at that point. I mean, I imagine an Oldham fan must hate him. I mean, the amount of times he scored <laughs> against um, yes Oldham, particularly. I mean, there's one goal he scores. It's in the cup semi final replay where he drifts across yes. the face of the area and bangs it back into the top corner with his left foot. It's an absurd goal. It really is, and. Um, and yeah, he's got Brian Robson scoring with his balls, but yeah, it is. It's, it's yeah, absurd. and he's got so many of those goals where he just um, streaks. So it's a famous one against QPR, actually. It's in the 92-93 season where Schmeichel hurls at the ball to him like a baseball pitcher, sort of 50 yards. I think uh, Clive Tilsley's doing the commentary and he says, oh, airmail to Konchelskis. And they just, he just puts him straight through on goal. <laughs> and it seemed like, you know, Schmeichel was the only keeper who had that kind of throw in the league and it just... It became this incredible weapon for United to break on teams. Um, you know, Danny, the wing with Giggs or or Kinchelskis. And he, yeah, he was scoring you know, double figures in those seasons as well. He was, uh, yeah, he was such a threat. Go on, Gary. Well, when you say about his short career at Manchester United, his career was even shorter at, at Everton. We only played one full season. He scored 16 goals. Um, but he's revered equally at uh, at Everton, where in a, a poll to find you know the most iconic player or favourite player of Premier League era, he came in third behind I think Duncan Ferguson and Tim Cahill. Um, and when you right. think he only played one season there, albeit he did score two goals at, at Anfield, but that yeah, helps, just, doesn't it? <laughs> it does help. Um, it, I think they were in the cop end as well, which is even sweeter. Um, he 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 just. He was just this force of nature there, and and you're right. He didn't really have a trick. And there was there was a time when Everton had Anders Limpar on one side of the field, and 
Andrei Konchelskis on the other. Um, you can see why it was exciting to be an Everton fan uh, in matches where both of them turned out. And I don't know if you recall that kind of grainy black and white thing that Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield did with Charles, Charlie, Charles um, <laughs> oh, yeah. as the, the, the uh, captain of a... <laughs> Kind of you know nineteen twenties uh, Arsenal fa- uh, team playing against nineteen uh, eighties Liverpool, but there's one point in which they pass the ball to their tricky winger and he's just moving <laughs> yeah. it with his foot from one side to the other to the other to the other, and that was Anders Limpar because Anders Limpar had his tricks and he would do that. Whereas on the other side. Kanchelskis, as you say, would either get the ball from a goalkeeper or, a, I mean, I hesitate to say long passes because your margin for error was enormous. You just had to boot the ball mm. into the opposition half, really. And then he would run onto it and he would either kick the ball into the space himself and run and catch up with it, or he'd have a uh, a, a teammate do so. And um, I think you're right, Lee. I mean, what he would be like today would be just horrific because the high press he would just murder like two Jamie Vardys at once and with VAR you wouldn't be able to touch him you'd be off for a dog so if you got him outside the box and you'd be given a penalty if you got him inside the box so um he really would be uh undoubtedly uh, uh, a footballer you could pick up from the 1980s, do almost nothing with, maybe a little bit of conditioning if if necessary, just put him into the football of 2021 and he would fit in and he would be a terror and would be a sort of 40, 50 million pound player uh, today. Um, and he was just so exciting to watch because you, you never really knew uh, what you were what you were going to get because if you if you didn't I mean he wasn't tracking back and he wasn't um, he wasn't being uh, disciplined he wasn't covering his man and supporting the uh, fullback and everything and I think that played a part in in his transfer from Manchester United but for for a, a kind of the kind of club that Everton were which was a mid-table club looking to get into the top sort of uh, five or six he was just so exciting uh, and a, a real game changer. I say on his day, he was just completely unplayable, um, and you could see the fear in defenders' eyes when when Kanchelskis was was up against you. And I, I mean, I come back to I don't want to labour this point too much, but we, we didn't really know where it was coming from because um, we didn't know much about Russians. Uh, we kind of had because he had a, a bit of a look of Sergei Bubka about him, and, and Bubka, the famous pole vaulter, would had some outrageous sprint time on the on the run up to the pole vault which is where he generated the momentum that flung him 6.2 meters over the bar or whatever so and there was Valerie Bortsov wasn't there 1972 olympics there is a a kind of tradition of soviet sprinting but um he just he he would just generate this pace from nothing and then run forward and kick the ball in the net the other thing about Kanchelskis, which we haven't mentioned so much is i don't think pat nevin and anders limpar headed the ball twice in their entire careers but Kanchelskis was a fierce header of a football um you know get the ball to him in the air and he was getting across his man and getting his header in and uh that was another dimension to his game uh yeah he was um his hero status of both Old Trafford and at Goodison are, 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 are not the products of mythology. They're products of people who were there and saw him and uh, wore the T-shirt and indeed the uh, Soviet hat. Mike, you mentioned that point about his, his, well, his move to Everton, Gary, you talked about, and, and Mike, you talked about his last season. 
he was obvious, didn't he? He scored like 16 goals or something up to Christmas in 94, 95, didn't he? And then he had that weird, well, you think it was an appendix, but he got a, a mystery stomach complaint that nobody could diagnose. And it was a kind of beginning of the end, really. But um, the question I was going to ask is how did his lack of appearance in that second half of 94, 95 directly contribute to Blackburn winning ahead of United, do you think? Um, well, it didn't help. I mean, there was one, there was one probably more significant uh, absentee, I think, for the, the second half of the 94-95 season <laughs> that probably yes. made a, a, a bigger dip. But yeah, I mean, he, I think it was a fish, I think it was a hernia that put him out at the very hernia end of it, the yeah. season. So he missed the cup final as well, where United lost to Everton. But he was, he was the club's top scorer that season. Um, yeah, think of that off the wing as well. And uh, there was a game before Christmas at Ewood Park where uh, where United beat Blackburn four two, and he basically turned that game around on his own. Um, it was a real showcase of just how devastating he could be. A few weeks after that, he got a hat trick against Man City. Um, you know, much like you know the the hat trick at the cup. Uh, sorry, the two goals at the cup end. That that uh, you know reserves a lot of goodwill in the bank for you with. Um, with the fans, but uh, it's interesting. Ferguson's uh, first autobiography, "Manager My Life," he he notes a change in Konchelskis in that season. I think he says, "Oh, what happened to the you know the nice young boy that used to come in with a smile on his face every day?" You know, he'd, um, there was something about him that had changed. There was, there was problems with his agents. Um, Ferguson's alleged that he was offered a bribe to sell him. Um, so there was all kinds of stuff going on, but there's all kinds of rumours about that that I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to no. air here just in case, in case we get any bother. <laughs> we haven't got enough time. It'll take about two hours to get to. Yeah, that. exactly. So um, yeah, and it was kind of on his way. And also because I guess great teams they move in three, four year cycles, don't they? That United were about to change, and that summer he left. Mark Hughes left, and Ince left, and then it's you know the kids and the well worn story. Um, and all of that. So his career kind of petered out a bit um, at the end of 94, 95. So he never really got the goodbye with the United fans that his performances would have would have merited, I think. Yeah, um, and, and the thing is, his exit from Everton was similar, wasn't it, Gary? That suddenly he just seemed to, his head drifted away and that it was very difficult to pull well, him back. Was, well, he was kind of high maintenance. We know We know that and... It was at a time when, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, um, shall we say, business norms were yet to be established. Uh, let's put it like that. So, <laughs> so how one conducted business uh, with those from the old Soviet Union or connections into the emerging uh, republics and the politicians and oligarchs and so on that still you know, play a big part at Everton amongst other places, but uh, obviously elsewhere in football. Um, and Kanchelskis appeared to be something of a, a, a pawn in these in these matters. And, you know, there was talk about sort of various release clauses where, where um, you paid a transfer fee, but then there were additional fees to be paid both to the player and to the uh, agent and you know how much of it actually would go to the player as opposed to the people around the player remains to be seen. And Kanchelskis, you know, maybe maybe it just maybe this is unfair because he's you know he's he's built a a life outside uh, or after his playing career as a football manager, 
and um, his son, uh, who I served in the in the shop where I'm about to go and work this afternoon, um, he he's a, a football agent himself. Um, but he seemed he seemed a kind of innocent abroad. You know, he 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 was he was this say whirling dervish on the field. He wasn't a, a sophisticated player on the field. He he didn't have the loquacious presence of a Thierry Henry or or the the stumbling, charming, charismatic English of a Gianfranco Zola. Um, he did do some interviews in a kind of stumbling English. Um, but you, you never really got to know the man. But what you did get to know were the, the rumours and the stories. And, of course, nature abhors a vacuum. So where you don't find out who this cult status player is, then in come all the, uh, the stories and the tales. And, uh, and there were tales of dressing room punch-ups and stuff like this and run-ins with managers. But um, he was universally liked by fans and many, many players uh, speak speak highly uh, of him and and uh, enjoyed his company and his presence. So in some ways he seemed rather an unworldly figure in a in a world in which being unworldly was 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 quite a good thing to be because if you were if you were worldly in that world if that makes sense um, then uh, you were you were going to end up in some uh, some strange places and indeed you know to be to be deadly serious uh, people who were associated uh with Kanchelskis uh were were actually sort of assassinated at uh at uh, football matches um you know how how associated they were and how loose that association is but you don't need to go far online when you're looking at the the people who were around Kanchelskis to find some pretty gruesome stuff uh and say not just in in money in terms of of assaults on the person so you know he got through that, and to his credit, but it, it kind of shows, I think, in in some ways, in in how he was unsettled at clubs, and for a man of that talent, even at that time, to uh, you know the the most appearances he had at any club, according to the uh, irrefutable source of um, Wikipedia, there's the 123 games he played at Manchester United, three full seasons. It's, we mentioned just 52 at Everton, Fiorentina, 26 Rangers, 76. And then some dribs and drabs at the uh, magnificently named Saturn Moscow Oblast uh, there, but he never established a a real career at a club, and you know that that may be due to the the noises off um, wanting to have another slice of the the, the cake that was uh, Kanchelskis's talent and what that would uh, bring in terms of monetary uh, advancement. Yeah, talking about him not settling in and, and trying to settle in, there was an interview he talked about the friend that he he became friends or sort of friends with Brian Robson, and it, because the, the, their dads were both lorry drivers, they bonded over that when they found that, or he bonded with Brian Robson over that, and it seems that Brian Robson took him under his wing a bit, and he says, "But get this, um, yeah, I got on with Robson. He'd taken me to his house. Okay, I understand that, and to Chester races. Yeah, I get that." And to a Paul Simon concert. <laughs> Imagine that, yeah. Grace Landon, still crazy after all these years while yeah. Robson and Kanzelskis are sat there. Ro- Robson uh. doing vodka shots with uh, a Russian at Chester Races. Is a, is oh, that, I can definitely thought. see that picture. That picture I can see. Yeah. It's the Paul Simon concert I'm struggling with. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd go to that, certainly with those two. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> go to a full time. I just wouldn't remember it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, yeah. so 
anything else on Andre Kanchelskis? Mike, anything you want to finish saying conclusion? Um yeah, just I guess just around his career, you know, he had the he had a went to Fiorentina, didn't he, after Everton. I remember that happening quite suddenly. You know, it just yeah. kind of within the space of a few days he was you know, he was gone and it didn't work out. I think he's he has a bit of a not quite the same level as Everton and United, but he has a bit of a cult status at Rangers as well for the four years he was there because he he sort of changed from being this uh, you know direct pace here. I think a bit of his pace had gone by then, but he did loads of um, innovative bits of skill that used to crop up on Soccer AM and things. So there's one time he um, he ran up to a fullback and he stood on the ball with both feet. So he was standing <laughs> on top of it. And then he put his... Um, you know, his hand over the top of his eyes like a sailor looking for port, you know, to see where the goal was. And that guy, you know, big stand innovation. There was one as well where he um he squared up a fullback and then he jumped and did a full three sixty pirouette before before trying to knock the ball past him and basically fell over. So yeah. I think he was um I don't know. At it the end like of his he career was he was Yeah. He was trying to do those highlights real things where, you know, you're yeah. trying to uh, be remembered and just make, just touch on his international career a bit yeah, as well actually because when he started playing for the Soviet Union as we said earlier it was just about to start to fragment so uh, obviously that fragmentation meant uh, that their international side wasn't strong as more and you know and it, it split into you know Ukraine and Lithuania and Latvia and uh, other nations so yeah, Kanchelskis is a Ukrainian, but his I think it's his mother is Russian and his dad is Lithuanian. Or I might yeah. have that the wrong way around. But he he carried on playing for Russia after um after the breakup. Um but they didn't really I mean they're knocked out in the first round of the two European championships he played in. Um, he actually he led a player boycott of the, the Russia squad at the ninety four World Cup when he was absolutely in his pomp. Um, and he he didn't go to that World Cup, so um, yeah, he, d- he doesn't really have an international career to to match his club one, I guess. But uh, yeah, from that from those early years of the Premier League, particularly, I think he, he's a very sort of cult player. I think he's uh, he's involved in so many you know notable goals and moments. I think, and I just think I think the way he played makes him makes him stand out as well. It did feel like he was on fast forward compared to you know a lot of other wingers in the league and then you know later on I mean, we spoke about this in one of the other pods but uh, Mark Overmars and Anelka and Arsenal would would take that on you know a level even further in uh, in 97 98 but uh, yeah very very fondly uh, remembered player and um you know really entertaining to watch the last point I'll make about that you said about that <clears throat> that move to Fiorentina happened in a matter of days but Joe Royal when he was interviewed said it had actually been building up for quite some time because one of the reasons why Kenselski's kind of head went that second half of the Everton season was that he knew the Italians were interested. Oh, right. So I think there was a bit of drip, drip of it, to him at least anyway, mm. that contributed. And he had a few niggling injuries in that second season, didn't he, Gary? But I think it, it all plays into, um, completely agree, it was wonderful to have him around, but all plays into the fact that he was maybe, how much better could he have been in some ways, if you hadn't had this constant drip, drip of what Gary mentioned about this, not so much an entourage, but certainly people around him who were, who were trying to get something via his career, it sounds like. Which is a shame, really, because imagine... I mean, he probably wouldn't have stuck it out at United, would he? Because Ferguson made a decision to make changes. And if you think about Beckham, 
very, very different right-sided player to Kanchelskis. It was a complete change, shift, wasn't it? I mean, I will make the point that everyone's very wise in cool washes their history of football in this because everybody thought that Chant Ferguson was bonkers. You know, it says, oh, yeah. that thing about what Alan Hansen said and laughs about it. So that's what everybody thought. Yeah. So that's what, this, this is not a kind of look how stupid Hansen is. It's like, no, we were all completely stupid compared to Ferguson, funnily enough. Yeah, and I, w- I will just say about his agents, actually. I mean, he, he was a very young lad when he would have when he would have signed in with the people that were representing this. And you see this in so many fields, don't you, in you know, music. Every English well. band in the 60s, for example. Yeah, but it's, you know... You never really know until you're signed in with someone, you know, how it's going to play and what these people are like. And once you're in, you're in, you know, you're legally bound and, you you know, you're tied to them then. Um, and according to so, rumours, you're bound by more than legality by some of these people that we're talking about. So Yeah, so, I mean, I wouldn't, I think there's a temptation to think maybe he was naive or a bit, mm. um, you know, a bit daft to get involved with some of the people here. But I, I don't know, it... I would give, you know, I'd be tempted to give some people a lot of leeway on that kind of thing because um, right. often, often the full horror of what people are like when they, you know, well, he, when they turn he, on you over money and things like that doesn't become fully apparent until a lot long after you've, um, you know, you've inked the paper. Yeah, I mean, he he was lucky and unlucky. Um, he was lucky in that had he been born 10 years earlier, we might only have seen him at... World Cups, he might have been like a comet, you know, that came across every four years mm. because he would have played behind the, here's the cliche, Iron Curtain. But he was unlucky in that he came to prominence at a time when the Soviet Union was a, you know, let's not mince words about it, it was a failed state. And into that vacuum rushed the characters who always rush into failed states. Um, and they often have unsavory uh, approaches to business approaches to life certainly approaches to uh personal relationships and Kanchelskis uh was no mug but he was a, he was a young man he was he was kind of 22 or something like that um when uh, an authoritarian was, regime previously as well Gary yeah. I mean you did what you were told in that regime you, didn't you did you? what <laughs> you did what you were told and um yeah I mean I I don't think any you you, you read a lot of stories some of which are substantiated some of which remain as as rumors uh, and they've always been there around um, the people who were hanging on to Kanchelskis, but I don't think anybody uh, points a finger at the man himself and says he has yeah. uh, bears any opprobrium with this. Um, you know, and had he been born ten years later, then some of the structures that that have come forward to do with registration of agents by UEFA and things like that would have would have done a, a lot better job in terms of of protecting uh, Kanchelskis from from some of those wins that circled him. But ultimately, it's a, it's a bit like, you know, I, I talk a lot about this when it comes to art, when it comes to culture and stuff like that. If, we, if we're constantly looking at the person and we're looking at the people around the person and we ignore the art and we ignore the, what they did, then the world becomes a very mm-hmm. bleak place. It becomes terribly black and white and, and uh, it becomes a an environment in which you don't wish to move. And I think sometimes you've just got to look at the art. And, you know, I'll finish on this point. I, I, I came home a couple of years ago and said to 
my elder boy. God, I, I, I served Andrei Kanchelskis' son today at, at work. Couldn't believe it. You know, he showed me his ID card for buying booze. And I said, oh, Kanchelskis, there's a famous name. And it was his girlfriend who turned around and said, yeah, he's his son. I said, really? And, of course, you look then and you see the... the the face and we we had a, a chat for five minutes or so partly because his son is a big Everton fan um because uh he grew up at a time when Kanchelskis was at Everton and uh, he still goes back and watches Everton at Goodison but um Jesper said to me um who, who was he I never heard of him Kanchelskis and so we got out the the highlights reel and he just sort of sat there watching it saying how come I don't know this person mm-hmm. how come I don't know this player with these extraordinary goals and I come back to that point, you know, if you're going to look at a Picasso or a, or a Modigliani or, or any, you know, Elvis Presley and, and, and judge them by the people who were around them and judge them by um, what existed outside their art, then you're missing so much more. And no matter what the people say about Andrei Kanchelskis and what there is, in terms of rumours and, say, the undoubted uh, hideous things that went around, uh, that happened um, either close to him or or a night's move away in which, you know, as I say, he, he is blameless. Um, come back to the goals, come back to the play, come back to Evertonians sitting around a pub saying, I tell you what, that Kanchelskis can play. And there'll be some Manchester United fans at a table opposite and they'll come across and they'll say, ah, he could play for us too. There aren't many players who could unite those two factions, but Kanchelskis could. And Rangers like fans just, say, um, do you remember that time he stood on the ball and pretended yeah. to look for the goal? <laughs> Sorry, he's actually, no, um, just to end on one thing, actually, he's, uh, he's actually a quiz question answer to one of the great football quiz questions, which is he's the only player that's ever scored in a Glasgow derby, a Merseyside derby and a Manchester derby. So uh, I can't imagine that uh, will ever be equaled, but you never know. So there you go. Andre Kanchelskis. I hope you enjoyed that little uh, rumble through our memories of him and thoughts around everything to do with him. Um, if, you, if you've got something you'd like us to chat about as a player of the pod, then please do get in touch. We'd be happy to take nominations. So that's that part done. So we move on now to um, our main discussion, which we'll probably go into two parts because there's a lot to talk about knowing us, um, which is Aston Villa's um, 1980-82 sort of league and European Cup triumphs. Before we get into that, there's probably some something to talk about, about Villa and, and Birmingham, Gary, is there, and the history well, and everything? I, I, I recall a, a quote, um, and it's an uncharacteristically ungenerous uh, or, or mean quote from you know the vast uh, archive that is the Tony Benn diaries, and and you know they're a, they're a tremendous read, and they're full of of warmth and opinion, uh, as I say, and in the main generosity even to uh, political opponents. But there's a there's a spike in one of the diaries where he says, "Never like Birmingham. It's got no history." Now, Tony Benn was a, a working-class romantic. He wasn't working-class himself, but he wasn't aristocratic either. Um, he got his peerage from his father being elevated to the peerage uh, just before, I think, or during the Second World War, can't remember. Um, but uh, but he romanticised working-class life, and so to him, history was kind of the, the chapels and the mines of South Wales or the, the march from... Jarrow in the in northeast, or the the dockyards of uh, 
Glasgow, the shipbuilding of Newcastle uh, and Belfast, or uh, and that sort of thing. And he said, you know, Birmingham is just a collection of factories that that uh, the people went there to to work in the factories, and they, you know, the heavy engineering and and the industrial revolution, and you know, all of those things that we learned about at school with Bessemer processes for iron and so on. Now, I mean, I I, I have a a kind of sympathy to some extent with that view. But when you go to Birmingham, it's a strange kind of sprawling place. And, you know, I've been many times on a on the motorbike to Birmingham and you know, you're not, unlike other cities, you're never quite sure when you're in Birmingham and you're not in Birmingham because it it's... It fails a, the can you draw it test. Yeah, it, 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 it definitely, it definitely does. And as a city centre, it doesn't, Really, it doesn't have a river that that runs through it. It, it has any number of canals, more can, miles of canals than, than Venice, and parts of of Birmingham are absolutely beautiful. You know, Edgbaston is beautiful. Bourneville, uh, the kind of model city, um, built by the Quakers at Cadbury, uh, there is 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 a fantastic place to go and to walk around. But what Birmingham does have, it has this fantastic, and it's. Some of it is still there um, that the Luftwaffe and the planners didn't get to. It has this wonderful kind of Victorian sort of architecture and Victorian feel to it in the way that Glasgow does and parts of Manchester. It's a it's a city, I think, of of places rather than a city of a, of kind of geography, if you like. And one of those places is Villa Park, um, often called Archibald Leach's. Uh, crowning glory, the the architect of many football grounds around uh, England and Scotland. Um, and whenever you go to Villa Park, uh, the only other ground that has a presence like it was the old Highbury. So it might be the last one left. And even though it's been redeveloped now and you don't quite get that uh, sense of majesty. Um, yes, I'm betting without Ibrox because I've never been to, to Ibrox. So that may have this presence as well. But it's the kind of, it's the red brick. It's the confidence. You know, it's been called the St Pancras of, of football because it's built almost like a kind of cathedral. It's built to last for for not decades, but for centuries. And it says something about Villa. It lends Aston Villa a kind of authority that it always enjoyed um, even though in the period just before the one that we're talking about, Villa had dipped even to the third level of English football. Um, but I think partly because of its history, uh, but also because of this presence of a ground, you know, hosted more semi-finals than any other uh, football ground, FA Cup semi-finals than any other football ground in England. Villa always had this kind of cachet, this weight and, um, and therefore, the, the kind of shock that Leicester City winning the Premier League brought, it wasn't quite that same shock when you look back to Villa winning the title in 1980-81. But if you look at it in a, in a purely football terms, it probably was as much of a shock. They wouldn't have started out at 5,000 to 1 for the title, but they'd probably have started at 500 to 1 for the title, or maybe in those days more like 100 to 1. But um, I think... That context of Villa um, having this this kind of historical and physical presence on the map of English football, it both lends, a, say, a context to what we're going to talk about, but it also substantiates what we're going to talk about. There was something right about Villa winning a title, and you know, I wouldn't want to 
be born in 1963 and live on to whatever age I, I, I live on to and not have Villa win either a First Division or a Premier League title. And I'm pleased that they did. Your point about Villa Park is a good one, actually, because it because of that semi-final thing. And, and, and when people talk about great terraces, I don't think the whole tend comes up enough in conversations. It tends to be dominated by the cop and Stretford End and, and everything else, really. But the... Um, I, my dad was my dad was a truck driver. Maybe I could have gone to a Paul Simon concert. With a, with, <laughs> but, but the but when I was on school holidays, my parents got divorced when I was eleven. And when I was on school holidays, I'd go and stay with my dad and stuff. And I'd actually go on in the wagon with him when he and he he worked for a company that had a just in time uh, contract with Ford. So we would go from St Helens in the north where he was living at the time and dry, go to London a lot and basically and down to Dagenham and stuff. Anyway, what I'm trying to say, we used to go down the M6, and I remember my dad pointing out to me that you could see Villa Park yeah. from the M6, yeah. that, that particular part of the M6. If you're going south, you look to your right, and you could see that um, that sort of triangle claret and blue badge on the on the stand, and how incredibly exciting it was. And I would look for it every single time we went past. I thought, oh, God, there's Villa Park. I've, ne- I've never been to Villa Park as it goes to, to watch a game. But yeah, it was a kind of visceral excitement as a as a thirteen year old in yeah. nineteen eighty nine to see that ground, and it was literally you know a very long way away, but I could make out that badge, and how exciting that was because of all that history, which I've never really thought about until you just said that, Gary. Yeah. Well, the first time I went to Villa Park was in nineteen eighty nine. It was for the semi final, uh, Everton against Norwich, where you know the the grim events at Hillsborough overtook that match but um due to coaches breaking down on the motorway and my dad and my brother having our tickets me and my other brother come come uh from london and my dad and my uh youngest brother came from liverpool um we were late getting in well we weren't late but we we arrived uh we we got through the turnstiles five minutes to three and I remember walking up these steps and the steps were going on and on and on and on and then came out at the top of the Holt end. And I've never been on a terrace as big as that because Goodison doesn't have big terraces. And, you know, the other grounds that have been to uh, London grounds, or I've been to plenty outside London grounds, didn't have uh, a, a terrace that had that kind of of um, sheer majesty in terms of its its size and, and yeah you know I, I don't know what its capacity is and I've never been to Anfield but the cop can't be much bigger than the whole ten because if it was much bigger than the whole ten it would be in the clouds <laughs> yeah so and I suppose we come into this season and I'll talk about we'll go back a little bit in a minute but we come into the season and, and we talk about the history and how everything looms large um, with Villa with them having not won a t- uh, championship for 71 years and actually Birmingham is is Britain England's sorry second largest city at the point you make about how many people move there huge you know forefront of the immigrant population and throughout history really but particularly since the 50s and yet not a great record of footballing success well, despite they... all of its advantages you could argue go on Mike yeah so Villa I mean they're I mean, they're the biggest club in an enormous industrial area um, in England. And very early on in the football league, actually, they they were the most successful club in England. I think through the 1890s, I think they won like you know five titles and so. And around the you know the turn of the century, um, 
they were probably the biggest club in England, and uh, so that that lends the club a stature, I think, along with you know um, mm. everything you've said about Villa Park. I think uh, Villa Park is it's very iconic in English football because there'll be there'll be a lot of fans who their club will have just had the amazing day out there in the semi final, yeah, you know, where yeah, where, yeah. You, where you secure your passage to to Wembley, you know, you get your big day out at the cup final, and it's. Uh, I've always thought it's an it's incredibly atmospheric ground, Villa Park. I don't know what it is about the acoustics there. Um, and ov- obviously you've got the whole thing of the occasions of semi-finals there. As well. I mean, United have won a few, you know, enormous semi-finals there. Two against Arsenal in particular, actually. One in 83 and then the, the famous one in 99 with the, um, you know, the Ryan Giggs uh, goal in extra time. But uh, yeah, so it had, that, that, they have a standing in the game, Bill, and and did you know approaching this uh, season that we're going to talk about them that there's, there was a grandeur to the club in the same way that you know, I think like you know West Ham and Tottenham have, um, but where but where it isn't so much backed up by recent results, but you know there there is something different about them to other clubs that aren't that aren't winning. Uh, you know, leagues and trophies, I think. I'm still a bit pissed off that semi-finals aren't played at Villa Park. Oh. That probably says about my age. I, 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 it, it, it leaves me completely cold that semi-finals just are played at Wembley as well now. There was something incredibly unique about another ground, another club lending you their ground for it such was, a game, you know. It, it was the most exciting thing to be to be going to another club's ground to see your team play against a third party um, was just so exciting. It was it was a unique experience. It, semi-finals day is in April, so the sun was usually shining. I remember the sun shining very hard on uh, Villa Park when uh, uh, in eighty nine, a glorious day. Um, and to go to Wembley, you know, Wembley is for the final, but Wembley also has an element of artifice to it. You know, it's Tarby's Cup final bar and all of this. There's a showbiz element to Wembley. And it's a, it was a hideous ground before it was redeveloped. And it's not very nice now. Um, it was so much better when you go to a semi-final at a neutral venue because you'd go in, you'd be wide-eyed because all the colours were different and you'd, you'd look at the, the kind of names on the bars and, and you know if there were any plaques around and this kind of stuff. It was just an absolute delight that's been swiped away from us so they can get 30,000 more in at, uh, at Wembley and help pay off the debt of... Uh, you know how many hundreds upon hundreds of millions of pounds were spent on a a ground that is about as soulless as a shopping centre off the A52 or whatever. Well, that was our old men yell at cloud moment there. So, uh, so that that that's that out of the way. Well, if young men knew what it was like, I think they would say the same thing. <laughs> yes, you the tragedy know. of it is is that they they haven't done. They haven't gone back to it, you know. They haven't gone back to England playing internationals around the country as well, which everyone received with the same sense of, you know, isn't this exciting and different? And you know, the atmospheres were different, and so on. But no, it's bloody Wembley. It's the it's you the know industrial it's the, estate in north northwest London. Oh, just don't awful. Get, don't yeah. get me so that's the kind of long history of Birmingham and our recollections of Villa Park, which was actually a nice diversion, but. I suppose more recently, just before this, or in the five years before this season happened, the key one of the key things that happened is that Ron Saunders took over um, in in nineteen seventy four in this club, 
And in a way, when you look at it, kind of, in my mind, it invented Moneyball, but in football in 1975 and went and built this team over a period that didn't cost a huge amount of money, but yet returned a great deal of value, if you're going to put it in those terms. Is that fair, Gary? Yeah, I think it it, it is fair. Um, you know, they were... They were an extraordinary blend of players, and we're, we're going to look at them individually, and we'll obviously look at them as a team. Um, but he, he only used 14 in this season, and he just had this ability to take players that perhaps other managers had either rejected or hadn't quite seen. And, um, I mean, I think this this was also the case of international managers because they were abysmally served by international selections. Uh, I might have a few strong words about that <laughs> later. Um, but, you know, Ron Saunders himself was a was an extraordinary character. He was known as a disciplinarian, and he was as grim-faced as you could imagine was Ron. He spoke a little bit like Marcello Bielsa does now, sort of reluctantly and downwards. Um, he was very unforthcoming, if that's the right word. But by all accounts, he had the driest and wickedest of senses of humour. So, you know, he was in some ways a, 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 kind, a kind of a counter-stereotype. He was a, a non-loquacious scouser. Um, but you could see that there was a, a hard edge uh, to him. He'd been round the block as a journeyman uh, player. And, you know, he just looking at the teams he played for, three appearances for Everton, and then the splendidly named Tombridge Angels, you know. Yeah, take I spotted that, that as well, yeah. Take that, Anaheim. <laughs> yeah. And then Gillingham, Portsmouth, Watford, and Charlton Athletic there. And then as a manager, you know, a similar sort of set of clubs in some ways, Yeovil, Oxford, Norwich, and he, he gets a gig for a year at Manchester City. I think every manager in the 70s had a go at Manchester City. And then he goes to Villa for his glory time, and then we'll come to the uh, the walk across the city to the Blues of Birmingham and then completing the triumvirate by going to uh, West Brom, um, which is very close to Villa Park when you, when you go to Birmingham. West Brom is very much in the centre of Birmingham. Um, he he would be he would be much caricatured uh, today because um, he just had this way of speaking and win or lose it was always grim for Ron Saunders but there are many ways in which older uh, men can inspire young men and he certainly inspired this team and unlike his own image of sort of grim uh, utilitarian functionality this was a team that was brimming with flair and anybody who watches uh, a brilliant documentary which covers it's on youtube it covers it well, it's not that brilliant because it's it's poorly edited there's lots of repetition in it but the best parts are where you see some of this team uh playing and they were an exciting team to watch with flair all the way through it and uh you know ron saunders from that uh that grim exterior uh, produced something of, of beauty, which, like many things of beauty, it flared uh, for just a short time, uh, two seasons in this case, before um, it then disappeared back into the mulch of much of uh, 80s English football. One of the greatest joys of actually, did, well, many joys of this podcast, one of this one in particular, was, was, was discovering this team 
because we do a lot of stuff that we remember, but I, I was five in 1981, so I don't remember anything, really. So um, so actually watching this team, because they are a kind of sleeper of, of, of English footballing um, triumph. People don't talk about them that much, especially when you talk about this, that dominant period of England, that... that that golden period of England of English football in Europe, in particular seventy five to eighty five, if you like, these aren't really talked about much, and they're not eulogised as much, and there's no, been nowhere near as many kind of big think pieces about the greatness of them written. So they've never been somebody I've, you know, I'll hold my hand up and say I've paid much attention to. But one of the great joys of going back and looking at this team was I just kept going, bloody hell! The whole time I was watching, I know the highlights reels are what they are, but even so, really, really good way of playing and there's there's a discussion we probably will have as we're going through about the role Ron Saunders played in that because the players don't talk much about the kind of tactical approach he had if he even had one and yet they produce this like wonderful fast-paced attacking football um have you got any thoughts Mike on the team generally or or do you want to talk about the team now yeah I mean I, I would uh uh, Gary said earlier, you know, they used 14 players. I would just like to underline that and like, put some exclamation marks there <laughs> next to it. It's it's just extraordinary. And I think that's uh, it's a joint record for winning um, the Football League or the Premier League. I mean, now every every Premier League team uses 14 players in every game, pretty much, you know, because you're allowed um, three substitutions. Also, I think there were seven of the players played in every single game. And this is it's a forty-two game season, so it's a it's a twenty-two team league. To put that in some kind of perspective, Serie A at the time was a sixteen-team league, so they were only playing thirty league matches a year. I think La Liga in Spain was an eighteen-team league, so they were doing thirty-four. Those two leagues only had one cup competition. Um, you know, they had they had they had two in England, and uh, the League Cup was early rounds played over two legs, so. Yeah, you know, people mythologise and romanticise what a treadmill the old English season was, but I don't, it bears repeating. I think. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary feat to get through an entire season with so few players. And I'm just looking now; they only made eight substitutions <laughs> in in the whole season, and that would just be someone coming off because they were um, injured. It's um, and they weren't a low energy team, were they? No, they very... I mean Liverpool to some extent were a low energy team, weren't they? A, yeah, a lot but of Villa played with this team weren't. Yeah, very high octane this Villa team, and um, yeah, it, you're right. They they don't talk often about kind of the the tactics used. I mean, to me, it just it looks like it. You know, the the standard, you know, standard four four two, and what they talk about outfield players. You play in five different combinations, don't you? So you've got the two centre halves, you've got the right back and the right wing, uh, you've got the left back and the left wing, the two central midfielders and the two centre-forwards. So you've just got five pairs of players working in tandem, and they, they you know, they they all stitch together uh, during the mm. game. So, I mean, to me, it looks um, it looks as straightforward as that. And you, I think you're right about it, not, them not being eulogised enough. I mean, Ron Saunders is not Brian Clough, is he? And, you know, so he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't kind of carry that... Um, Charisma, but I mean, and we're going to go through the players now. There, there aren't those kind of, um, 
they had some great players, obviously, and we will come on to that. But I don't think there was any one particularly where you could hang this championship on him and say, well, he's the reason that happened. You know, like you just got to say, like say Shearer for Blackburn, mm. where I don't think one player made such an obvious difference to the rest. I, I don't think. Um, I don't know what I, you guys think. Well, I, I want to talk about a structural matter that I'm sure I'll be castigated later on. Twitter at Gary Naylor nine nine nine. If you want to tell me just how wrong I am, is this what he's calling it? Theories, Gary, go on. Yeah. <laughs> we love this. Go on. Well, um, in in the eighties in particular, seventies and eighties in particular, the press were a very big player in uh, sports, in football in particular, and there weren't many of them. There was, you know, Ken McGee or Frank McGee, the voice of sport, and there was a guy called Ken who wrote it. Uh, the Daily Mirror. I think Frank McGee was at the Daily Mirror, and there were there were other journalists. But it, you know, there was no internet. Um, there was BBC and ITV, um, but they didn't really do a huge amount in the way of journalism. There weren't co-commentators. Um, the personalities in the broadcast media tended to be, uh, you know, Jimmy Hill, obviously. Um, but the, it was the commentators. It was Coleman. It was Barry Davies. It was John Motson. It was Brian Moore. Um, Hugh Johns at, uh, in the Midlands for ITV. Um, but it was a small, a relatively small coterie of journalists who were based in London and Manchester. And I, I really believe this, that they weren't very happy about Villa muscling in on, on their territory because all of their contacts were in London and in Manchester. And even... I can remember we took the Daily Mirror delivered, and I can remember even as a quite young, 11 or 12, 13, 14 years old, I'd pick up the Daily Mirror in the morning from behind the door, and the back page was full of Manchester United news. And this was when Liverpool were the European champions, <laughs> because the contacts were, were, were there. And I don't think they had much in the way of contacts. Ron Saunders was taciturn at best. And the media darlings at that time were, were Ipswich. Now, you may say, well, you know, Ipswich, that's, you know, sort of fairly provincial and everything else. But but they had they had uh, Bobby Robson, of course, who was always great for a, a, a quote. Um, and they played the, the kind of football that, that, again, it's maybe it's a prejudice of mine, but the for, there's a long-standing, I think, uh, prejudice against high high-powered fast football in England. You were always told you were a technician and you needed to put your foot on the ball and pass. And you know, I'm not going against Frank Tyson and Arnold Muren, who were outstanding players at Ipswich, and Muren went on to be an outstanding player at Manchester United. But quite a lot of us who were unversed in the arts of football quite liked it when you had midfielders breaking from the halfway line on a muddy pitch, somehow managing to run with the ball, control it and slide it past the goalkeeper, advancing to the edge of the box. But somehow we were always told you were a better player if you put your foot on it and passed it sideways and slowed the game down. So you get Tony Curry being eulogised. You get, and I know Mike and I have had a little bit of a conversation about this, you get Ray Wilkins slowing the game down, getting 80-odd caps for England, where Dennis Mortimer speeds the game up and gets precisely zero caps for England. And I, I just think there was there was something in that. There was, a, there was an agenda that was set by where it was easier and where you got better stories, I think, for the press at the time 
which was coming out of Manchester and London and Scribes nightclub and the, the haunts around Fleet Street and the conversations that would go on. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's always been the case for journalism. Um, but they didn't really want to write about Villa. They didn't want to write about Ron Saunders, you know, and who the hell is Alan Evans? And, and you know, Peter Worthy's been around. He's just a big yard dog up front, nodding the ball in six-yard box. They, they really looked down on this Villa side. And yet this Villa side, in some ways, were were it wasn't so much a, a kind of uh, high press, but it was heavy metal football from you know the city of heavy metal music, <laughs> and uh, you know it was it was something that the press never really came to terms with. And even today, as you say, um, you won't you, you might get a little bit of appreciation for Gordon Cowan's, but you'll go a long way before before you get to a list of great English forwards of the 1980s before Gary Shaw's name gets mentioned. And that's because his name, his career was cut short. But Gary Shaw could have been, was actually one of the great forwards of the 80s, in uh, English forwards of the 80s. He could have gone on to be an all-time great. He really was that good. But you won't, you won't read about that in the mainstream media because, you know, he played in Birmingham. That's one of the... Um... One of the fascinating things about this team, actually, is uh, a lot of the credit for putting this team together goes to um, it's Tony Barton, who's the manager yeah. who, who will come on to who takes over after Ron Saunders. He was he was the assistant manager and chief scout at the club, so he he would have identified a lot of these players. So on the face of it, it looks like a bit of a patchwork quilt of a team, you know. So you've got you've got Gary Shaw and Gordon Cowens. Um, that are coming out of the youth team. Um, there's Bremner and Alan, Alan Evans that are signed, you know, from uh, Scotland. Alan Evans, they signed him as a centre forward. Actually. Yeah. Uh, and then, a, then, go on, go. Go on, Mike, finish that point. I'll come in. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And then, then converted him into a centre half. You had um, Jimmy Rimmer, who'd been Arsenal's goalkeeper for a long time. And, you know, Peter Wyth, who'd won the championship with Forrest. But they, they you know, they're kind of stalwart, good, solid. Um, you know English uh, league players, so it's uh, it's it's a real hybrid of all these things. And I think the money ball point you made earlier, Lee, was a good one. You know, it wasn't put together with a tremendous amount of money. And this this is even after uh, Andy Gray was sold as well, which I think is like a real big moment in the transformation in this team. So early in the seventy nine eighty season, Andy Gray, who a couple of years earlier had come down from Dundee United and he'd won the Player of the Year Award and the Young Player of the Year Award in the same season. You know, he was absolutely brilliant um, in his first couple of years for Villa Andy Gray, but, you know, fell out with Ron Saunders all the time. There was a big kind of power struggle between the two. Uh, Andy Gray actually said that when he left the club, um, I remember hearing this in an interview with him once, that uh, the board at Villa actually asked him, would you stay if we let the manager go? It's, that's something um, Andy Gray's uh, claimed. I don't know the uh, the veracity of that story, but that, that's uh, that's definitely something he said. But he left. He went to Wolves for a British record transfer fee. I think it was just under £1.5 million, which in 1979, that's a colossal uh, sum of money. Um, and, you know, it... it, it I, at the point he was sold, it looked, you know, madness to sell, you know, one of the best strikers in England like that. But what what it did is it it, 
it allowed some money to be, not all of it by any means, but some of the money got invested back in the club. They bought Tony Morley from uh, Burnley, and I think that was you know quite uh, transformative. And uh, yeah, gradually put together the team that would go on to have this amazing season. That point about Alan Evans. Chip, so go on, guy. I was going to chip in briefly um, because Mike makes a point that uh, Alan Evans was a converted forward who went to centre half, and uh, he could finish. You know, he scored I think seven goals in this season from mm. centre half, and they weren't from set plays. They were, they were. Uh, he scores an amazing play. like volley on the turn against fantastic, yeah. brilliant goal. Another much underrated uh, forward who would absolutely play in today's football was the uh, fullback Kenny Swain, and he was a converted forward as well. I mean, all of these players were were, were ball players. Uh, they they were playing on the most dreadful pitches, uh, sometimes with you know heavy rain sodden balls and all of this kind of stuff, but every man from one to eleven in that side, well, maybe not one because you know got ball-playing goalkeepers were still 20, 30 years in the future. Um, but every one of them was a ball player, and that made a difference. And I'm sure that was part of what Tony Barton was looking for when he was scouting these players. He had to be able to give a pass and take a pass to play on the half turn to find a killer ball when the opportunity presented itself. And, you know, you add that to the energy which this team uh, brought, and you've got a formula there that uh, is going to work in any in any period of football uh, from its founding to the present day. That um, Alan Evans point, it's amazing how many times you hear that story in the eight, 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, that, that yeah, mm. I used to be a striker, but now I'm a full, I'm a centre-back or, or the other way around. Can you imagine that now? Imagine what Twitter would say if somebody who plays who plays as a yeah. striker gets moved to centre back. Do you think everyone would have got insane? But there is yeah, so something interesting about how were they so interchangeable? I suppose they all make the same runs, don't they? I suppose it's, it's as simple as that. Well, it's just I guess it's basically or you stand in the same spot but just turn around and face the other way, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and keep doing what you're doing. But you know, it, as you and say, they tend to be pacey, don't they? That's true. They both tend to have pace, don't they? If, if in, the, in the truest sense. Yeah, I mean, in the nineties, I remember Paul Warhurst doing that for Wednesday. Yeah. Chris Sut- Chris Sutton, at, um, you know, Norwich was uh, Warhurst was a fullback at Oldham, didn't he? As well, yeah. Um, he, yeah. Uh, Ian Marshall, Ian Marshall, who did he play for? Ian, Mar- Ian Marshall left Everton because he wouldn't put him at striker. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm amazed there aren't more of them. Uh, really, what tends to happen is that. They start as strikers as Alan Evans did, and they they just don't quite have that pace. Um, but if they can read the game, you can drop back, have the game in front of you rather than play back to goal, and then uh, be able to to just have that little yard extra to to play in. Um, was the last of them Dion Dublin? Dion Dublin was sometimes play centre half one day and centre forward the next. Um, mm. But uh, but it, it happens less frequently. I I think there's something. A miss in football. I think there are players who are playing in the wrong places. Uh, yeah, uh, Mason Holgate, we all think, is a is a defensive central midfield player who somehow is at full back and centre half for Everton. And um, Stephen Gerrard started out as a full back. He went into midfield, and you know, there's a lot of Liverpool fans. I think think that uh, Trent Alexander. Arnold should be playing uh, more as a midfielder, particularly now as teams are targeting him as a weak link defensively. Um, but but players do get 
assigned positions, sometimes I suspect in schoolboy football, and you know they stay with that for thirty years as a as a career from the under tens through to their last games at thirty seven and thirty eight. And I think there should be more imagination shown, and I think this Villa side showed the benefit of that imagination with uh, a, a fullback who could play like a, a winger and a forward in Kenny Swain, and a centre half who could finish like a centre forward in Alan Evans. So it's probably worth, we've talked about some of the players there. Um, it's probably just worthwhile just running through kind of that those 14 players. We've mentioned Jimmy Rimmer, the goalkeeper signed from Arsenal, had one England cap on a ridiculous tour to the USA in the late 70s. But, um, um, but you know, that England was quite, it had the reputation of being strong for keepers for a long time. And I think he was kind of proof of it, really. I suppose there were about three ahead of him for England, if you look, look at it that way. Um, Kenny Swain, we've already mentioned, who, who was signed as a he was a midfielder, but became a fullback, put in at fullback. And I think you're absolutely right, Gary. They could all play play the ball very, very well, and that screams out when you watch the footage now just how well they could play. And I think there is something about that's what they were looking for ultimately. Colin Gibson was a left back. He was only 21 years old. England under 21 international went to United later on. Mike, as I'm sure you will mm-hmm. recall. Gary Williams, the full-back, who was uh, uh, only 20 years old. Ken McNaught, Scottish central defender, joined Villa from Everton in 77. Uh, was a of the classical school of stopper, Gary, I think you would oh, say. Oh, yeah. He was a big Scottish stopper, blonde-haired. He was very much sort of in the Gordon McQueen uh, mould. Uh, what you saw is what you got from Ken McNaught. He'd give you a reducer or a reminder, but uh, you didn't want anybody else when that corner or set piece is dropping between the six-yard box and the penalty spot. You didn't want any other player in English football getting his head on it than Ken McNaught because he would clear that ball, and if you were in the way, he'd clear you as well. Alan Evans, the other Scottish centre-half that we've talked about. Of course, the other converted Scottish centre-forward we forgot about was Ken, Kenny Burns, of course, at uh, oh, yes. yeah, Forest, yeah. <laughs> who everyone thought Clough was insane. Or, or um, yeah, Gordon Cowens, we've mentioned Sid Cowens. He was known um, uh, to probably the biggest Villa legend now in this day and age. Um, recently diagnosed with uh, dementia, Gordon Cowens, last year, unfortunately for him. Um, but... Mike, you're you're quite a fan of Gordon Cowens, aren't you? Yeah, oh god, great player, yeah. Um and yeah, you can see it right through this season. Brilliant um you know, passing range, great vision, would join attacks. Would would do the full the full midfield uh remit as well, I think. Um along with Dennis Mortimer actually, and they just seem to have a great understanding between them. About you know who should go, who should stay. You know this thing that mm. Frank Lampard and Stephen Gerrard never quite got their uh, <laughs> it got always their comes heads back to them all, too, doesn't it? it yeah, always comes their back heads, to them. all their egos around uh, <laughs> sorting out. But um, yeah, and I think that's that's the thing actually. There's there's a real kind of lack of ego in this team. I think or it that's seems a really to me, good anyway. point actually. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I've briefly forgotten the the winger's name now. Um, Tony Moore. Uh, Tony Moore. Oh, sorry, Tony Moore. Um, yeah, he he was the one who was seen as a, a bit flash because he had slightly longer hair than the, the rest of the, you know, the rest of the team. But um, yeah, they were very um, all in and you know running hard and running for each other. I think, but yeah, Cowens, I just uh, yeah, the vision of him. It's uh, 
you get the impression where some people they talk about the 80s now particularly if they hadn't seen it well you know Glenn Hoddle was the the only English player that could get the ball down and and spray it around and every, everyone else was like a lumbering pit pony playing in midfield but it's, it, you know it wasn't true I mean, and uh, yeah Dennis Mortimer as well I think was a fantastic player you know breaking late through midfield there's a couple, there's a couple of his goals from this season where you know Villa break up the pitch and he just he, he arrives late in the box or through the middle um, to get on the end of something but uh, yeah Cowan's good enough to later be picked up by Bari and go to Serie A he's one of the few players in this team that would get international honours I mean he was, he was so good I think he just kind of eventually forced the issue on that and it's uh, it's a real shame with him actually in 83 I think he broke his he broke his leg um, and missed an entire season when he was never quite the same the same player again but um, for the few years we're going to talk about here, the championship and the European Cup, yeah, it was absolutely integral to everything they did. Only yeah, twenty-two if, this year, just on the youth settle, basically. Yeah, I mean, he 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 was a little like uh, you know, in the present day a kind of Luka Modric type figure. It was out Gordon Cowan's Luka Modric. You look at the playing honours, Cowan's. He won the League Cup. He won Division One the title, he won the Charity Shield, he won the European Cup and the European Super Cup. And that's a, a, a Palmares to, to set alongside any uh, there. And he certainly had that sort of slight fragility that you'd see in a, a Luka Modric or maybe a Pavel Nedved or someone like this who... but. He, you know, he he wasn't a, a big man. He was slight of frame as well as a relatively short of stature, uh, but he could hold his own. But he could get on the ball, and then he could see a pass, and then give a pass. And he never shirked a challenge. In this day and age, in the early eighties, you'd be kicked up in the air over and over again. And Cowens, with his rolled down socks, would just get back up again, take the free kick, drop it on the head of Peter Worth, who'd nod it into the back of the net, one nil. He, he actually, I think he disproves the theory about English midfield playing those days, you know, that you had to be, you know, brawny and hardworking and you couldn't survive otherwise in this, you know, great threshing machine in the middle of the park. And uh, he was a very spindly guy. Yeah, he was fairly willowy, the, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, it's like the shirts. Could they not have got a shirt that fitted him at all? I mean, <laughs> it's like the sleeves are coming over his hands, it seems to me, like, all the time. It's, it's just <laughs> clinging to him when it's wet and it's... Uh, it's- there's just a touch of Billy Casper in Cass about uh, yeah. Cowens <laughs> there always was. But yeah, I mean, I think he, if he played for Tottenham and Hoddle played for uh, Villa, I think uh, we pretty much have the same thing in reverse. <laughs> I really do. I no, really do. To be honest, yeah, I do see what you're saying, Gary. I do. Um, we move on to, you've already mentioned him, but I think Dennis Mortimer, who for me was the greatest, because I was five at the time, Looking back at it, it, was the greatest revelation watching this because what a what a player! Love late, like you said, Gary, um, Mike, late running, involved in everything. The tempo, lovely diagonally angled passes along the floor, and every oh, just such a nice player. Signed from Coventry in nineteen seventy five, ran round with his shirt out, looking a bit like Ricky Villa, but nowhere near as exotic. Great, uh, he was he was just everything I want in a midfield player. Um, he was a scouser to boot. There was a strong 
Scouse spine to this uh, team with uh, Mortimer Morley out wide and Peter with through the the middle, and he never lost his. And Saunders, his of course, from and Birkenhead. Ron Saunders. Well, you wouldn't yeah. think so. Hearing him speak, would you? That Ron Saunders. No, there was from just a little bit of Birkenhead in there. Yeah, um, and you know that's partly why there's there's definitely an affinity between. Uh, Villa fans and Everton fans, due to you know many shared histories and a certain sense of of similar records in in lots of ways, but but it was cemented, I think, and forever will be in this uh, early eighties team because you know Dennis Mortimer was just a fan, fantastic player. He was a he was a kind of player I, I really like as well because he was a hard man, but he wasn't a hard man because he booted you up in the air. He was a hard man because when he was booted up in the air, he got on with the got, got back on his feet and got on with the game. But a brilliant runner from midfield, a leader, box to box goal scorer. Um, inspirer of of uh, of his teammates. Um, what what more do you want? Well, people obviously did want more because he got precisely zero England caps, which is a travesty of the highest order. Yeah, he's one of the um, one of the first players signed by Saunders as well. Actually, I think he came. Yeah, seventy five. Seventy five. Yeah, he's the the captain of the team as well, and I think yeah, definitely in that conversation of the greatest players never to be capped by England. You know, he'd be in there with Steve Bruce and um, is it Howard Kent? Howard Kendall? Is that, that's the Everton one, isn't it, Gary? It never got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was the, the one of the, the Holy Trinity didn't get a cap. I think Colin Harvey only got one uh, or two, but uh, I don't think Kendall got an England cap. Yeah. But I mean, Mortimer, obviously Mortimer held up the European cup. He lifted the European Cup. I think probably Steve Bruce did as well, to be fair. But to lift the European Cup and not get a cap playing on some uh, gridiron field, on some USA tour in order to to promote some FIFA bid or something, it's just unbelievable. Uh, moving on, Des Bremner. <laughs> we'll come back to that, no doubt, when we talk about some mm-hmm. performances, especially in the European season. So... Des Bremner uh, signed from Hibs in 79. He wasn't the only cap once by Scotland, but, it, you know, that period was pretty strong in Scotland. Um, Peter Worth, you've already mentioned. Do you, come... want, do, you want, do you want to say a few words about Des Bremner? Because he was very much the workhorse in this uh, in this team. And um, Mortimer was more box-to-box, but he was more ahead of the game. He was the the, the runner onto the end of the, the passes, where Bremner tended to sit deeper and... There's a lovely bit where he's talking about one of his goals in that documentary where um, he's very self-deprecating about his finishing. Uh, but it was a time when, when you know, a sitting midfielder really did sit and they didn't often go forward. But he read the game so well. He was uh, he was quite an experienced pro at this time. I think he was 28 or so mm. at the time. And I think some of his approach to the game is shown in his subsequent career where I think he became the chief financial officer of the PFA or something you know this is a this is a man who knew how to um, allocate his resources uh, physical and mental uh, particularly well and it showed in that side you know every every great team has a player who is kind of underrated or whom 
you know, you don't really see. And and that player in this team was Des Bremner. And you, at that time, you always had to remind yourself that this was not Billy Bremner because Bremner, the name, was so associated mm. with mm. Uh, with Billy Bremner. And uh, you get the idea that that one or two Scottish caps that he got, perhaps they did think he was Billy Bremner in the way that uh, Mike Bassett picked uh, Benson and Hedges. But um, he very much deserved that uh, Scotland cap. And how many how many caps would he have had in the last 10 years for Scotland? 100? But that just goes, mm. as you've already said, uh, Lee, as a testament to the talent uh, that was available to Scottish managers at the time. Peter Wids up front. We've already mentioned him a little bit. He'd been signed from Forest in 78 after Clough decided that wasn't it. I think it was coincided with Tony Woodcock coming through was when Wids was let go from memory, but I could be wrong. Um, and and Bertles... Bertles. Bertles, of course, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but like you said, I mean, much travelled and frequently underrated, it says here, which I think is probably, probably sums it up really, doesn't it? And yet bagged a shitload of goals this season and was the perfect foil for, well, the, the perfect partnership with him and Gary Shaw. Yeah, he was a real penalty box bully. Um, he he would get on the end of, of crosses, scored a lot of goals from inside the six-yard box, uh, very much knew his game. He knew a centre-halves game. He knew where the referees were looking and when they were looking in those places. And he brought all that old pro experience to score vital goals in, in vital games. And uh, a connoisseur's choice, I think. When you watched, when you watched Peter with, you watched as much for the kind of dark arts and... You know, almost the runs he didn't make. He was one of those players who, if he stood still, found himself in space. And uh, you know, he was a centre forward who absolutely maxed out uh, his his abilities. Uh, and again, I think that's a testament to the players who were around him, but also to the coaching and to Ron Saunders' ability to knit together a jigsaw of players, which any one of those pieces mislaid and I think this team is weakened significantly but all of them came together and they all played well seven of them played every every match so uh that possibility didn't arise but uh yeah yeah I mean there's there's always going to be a place for someone who gets on the end of crosses who can who can finish with either foot and who can bully a centre half and that's what Peter With did so why has there been no like loads of think pieces on you know Peter With being the Serginho of this team. <laughs> well, Which again just shows that nobody pays any attention to this team, do they? Because they well, wouldn't even know who the stars were, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think if you ask a lot of football fans of, of today, you know, who, who scored a goal to win a European Cup final for a British club, you'll get a lot of names before you get to Peter With. <laughs> That's very true. Speaking about a lack of superstars in this team, I suppose if you're going to, if, if there was to be nominations for the, the, the actual standout stars of the team, you're into the kind of last that it, it will come from one of these last two players, which is Gary Shaw. That we've that our Gary has already eulogised on what a wonderful uh, player he was, and then of course Tony Morley, 26 year old winger signed from Burnley. For somebody who was seen as a bit flash, Mike, as you said before, yet when you hear him speak, very very unassuming, humble sort of guy, completely an opposite to kind of how he played, perhaps. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, what a brilliant player. Um, and, and this season as well, I mean, he's, he's got so many standout, uh, I guess, moments in it. And, and from when they won the 
the European Cup as well. I mean, for for two years, I can't believe there would have been many better players um, than him anywhere in the football league. Really, he, he's he's their John Robertson, really. You know, if you yeah. want to kind of hold them up to um, uh, Forest for a comparison, he was just you know this game breaker um, and a bit like you know we discussed with Conchelsis earlier. Um, I think a bit ahead of his time. You know, a a right footed winger playing on the left. Um, who could who could cut in and shoot? Um, his left foot also, was great as well, though, wasn't it? Oh, guys, crossing, yeah, from his left yeah. foot it was, um, you know, fantastic. He's such a threat. You know, could stand a fullback up and then, you know, from a standing start, go go past him, um, and just uh, just the perfect outlet for this team on the left, really. Um, you know, brilliant, brilliant players. I was into, I read an interview with him actually where he said. Um, he actually he lost a lot of faith in English football, uh, just generally as, as as a thing when he didn't get taken to the nineteen eighty two World Cup. Which well, you, you would, know, wouldn't you? Christ, well, yeah, you just think, Jesus well, how, how, how much better can I play? <laughs> what am not, I supposed to do exactly? Yeah, you know, and you're taking two injured players in Keegan and Brooking, but you know, you're leaving me at home, and after after all I've done, I, I, I really can't blame him for that. But um, yeah, came across from. Burnley in 79 and Burnley's I suppose about around then had a great reputation as being an academy for really talented wingers basically Trevor Stephen came uh, came out of Burnley as well um, right. and, and signed for uh, for Everton but uh, yeah he was no tra- good was he Gary? <laughs> <laughs> no there was uh, there was Dave Thomas I think Leighton James as well yeah but um, yeah fantastic players Sc- would, would go on to score the goal of the season um, in this campaign at Goodison Park with a young Gary Naylor looking on awestruck. <laughs> uh, come to later on, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I, I said earlier, you wouldn't necessarily pluck one player out and say they were the difference in this this season. But he he was one of the ones, certainly, just kind of bubbled up to slightly above the rest in terms of, you know, he, he, was, he was a real game-breaking player for Villa. Yeah, he was he was such an exciting uh, player to watch. Tony Morley, he he was he had a bit of John Robertson about him, but he was quicker over sort of forty yards than than Robertson. Because once Morley went past you, uh, that was it. You know, he was he was going to get his cross in. He was going to get his shot in, as he did uh, at Goodison for the goal of the season there. And I I remember the re- reaction. There was a a kind of two-minute hush where we worked out what had happened because it was very early in the game. I think it was three minutes into the game. And then applause went uh, around the ground. Uh, there was no kind of booing or it was just an acknowledgement that we'd seen a, a great goal um, with the ball moving from really from Everton's uh, dead ball uh, or Villa's dead ball line in, in three passes into the, the back of the the net. I mean, it helped that he was a scout. He was an Evertonian. Lots of his family were, were there uh, watching, and there was an, an interesting tale of how he'd been wound up by Ron Saunders, which I think shows a little bit of Saunders' dry sense of humour, where um, he'd said he'd given the, the reserve team bibs out to them in training the day before they were playing the match, and Morley was a bit miffed about this, and uh, he went to Ron Saunders and says, what's going on? Ron Saunders apparently said, well, you know, it's a big game for you and I'm not sure your head's in the right place. So 
I'm going <laughs> to you know, put Pat Heard in there. He's a bit more reliable than, than yourself. And, you know, Morley was full of anger and everything else, saying, you know, I've got my mum and dad coming and all of this kind of stuff. And then uh, the morning of the match, Ron Saunders goes to him and said, uh, I've had a bit of a, a, a rethink, so uh, get yourself ready. You're in the 11. And uh, and sure enough, he, he did go in the 11. And three minutes in, he scores the goal. And he he, he doesn't quite give the V sign to the, the bench, but he, he gives it a bit of an up yours to uh, Ron Saunders in doing that. But of course, Saunders had uh, had pulled the trick and... Um, and he got that out of out of Tony Morley, but you know everything everything you want from a wide player, as you say, a game changer, cross off either foot, uh, nightmare to defend against. Uh, God knows what it'd be like these days with yellow cards and VAR and 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 stuff mm-hmm. like this, because you because one say once he got past you, that was it. Um, but somehow not good enough for England, except on I think eight eight occasions. Extraordinary stuff. Um, but I, I, I just want to say a few words about Gary Shaw as well, because I've already said how, how good he was. Um, an absolutely tremendous player. Um, played 40 matches. I think he was 20 years old, was he? Or 21? At this time, it was his first full season. Scored 18 goals, and the quality of the goals that he scored were absolutely outstanding. He could do everything. Um, hold the ball up back to to goal play whilst being kicked, uh, lovely linking play. He could get on the end of crosses. He could run and shoot from the edge of the box. He scored scrappy goals as well. Um, he, he, he a, a bad injury at the age of twenty three. Uh, he he did play after that, but he never really came back to the heights that he hit. Um, but he he could have been that great centre forward. He 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 was in some ways he was like Trevor Francis. Um, at the same age, Trevor Francis was a prodigy and a Birmingham lad himself. Um, but uh, you know, Gary Shaw had absolutely, absolutely everything. You could always spot him as well because he had a boy band mop of blonde hair, which always helped in uh, in those days in picking out players when you couldn't see numbers on shirts and things like this. There were no names on shirts. And you know, what would what would Gary Shaw be worth after a eighteen goal season like that? And winning the title at twenty years old today as an English player, mm. you're looking you're looking sixty million and the rest, aren't you? Um, what a what a player and what a a personal tragedy as well as a, a tragedy for English football, um, if we can use that that word. That he never had the opportunity to explore his potential. Um, I do think when I look at English players, there his ceiling was at least as high as Trevor Francis's ceiling and possibly higher. Uh, who knows what he would have gone on to achieve, but the evidence that we have across a whole season and then a European Cup campaign is that the, the sky was the limit for, for Gary Shaw. But alas, we never we never got to see it. Um, but what a player. Yeah, he's one of the great lost talents of English football, I think. I mean, it's, it's so sad that his, his career got... Uh, curtailed by injury like this. So he was 19 years old when this season um, kicked off, you know, straight out of the Villa Academy. And I think there's something magical at any club, isn't there, of what if you, I mean, bringing through your own players is great, but if you bring through a striker, you know, the kid that scores you the goals, that wins the game. It's like, you know, when, um, you know, Robbie Fowler came through at Liverpool, Harry Kane now. Wayne Rooney at Everton. Yeah, Rooney. It just means so much more, doesn't it? I think. Yeah. Um, and we uh, we kind of romanticised a little bit earlier about you know the fact that this team played such an amount of football 
you know, with so few players, they never changed the team. So when he did get injured in it's in September of '83, it's in a tackle with Ian Bowyer in a game against Forest, and 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 his knee goes basically. I mean, that might have been a one-off impact injury, obviously, but um, I do wonder about the effect of a young player like that playing so much football in those conditions and, you know, playing all the time as well. It's like, what impact that has on your body? You know, does it weaken you? Does it leave you more susceptible to picking up, you know, a really bad injury that can affect your career? Because Gary Shaw, the sadness of it is really, Gary Shaw, he he could and should have been one of the players of the 80s, really. I mean, you may not even have heard of Gary Lineker in terms of, you know, what he went on to be in terms of, you know, scoring 48 for England and being the, the golden boot run at the 86 World Cup and all of that. I mean, that that could have been Gary Shaw, um, mm-hmm. you know, doing all of that for England. And uh, Well, we, we should be thankful, really. I think we saw him, one, this season. I mean, I'm, the, the point you make, the variety of goals he scores, yeah. left foot, right foot, you know, from distance, that calmness of a bomb disposal expert when he's in the area, um, and the amount of goals he's involved in that he doesn't score as well, you know, assists and or pre-assists and all these these uh, kind of uh, terms people bandy about now. Yeah, what a sensational player, and we would go on to be the young player of the year this season as well. And it's uh, it yeah, it's it's great that we got to see him, you know, win the title and win the European Cup. But it's tinged with just a little bit of sadness to st- if you think what well, what a player he could have been. If he could have got to, you know, his mid to late twenties with, with, with a, you know, in in full health, we'll um, yeah, absolutely. So we've probably reached the end of part one now. I'll just finish quickly. Just we've said about the players that played every game. It's just worthwhile listing who they are. It was Des Bremner, Gordon Cowens, Ken McNaught, Ken Swain, Tony Morley, Dennis Mortimer, Pete, oh, not Peter Whip, and Jimmy Rimmer. All played every single game, so it's just you know, which is, and then a number of others played thirty nine and forty and thirty six. It was a ridiculous season in many ways. That's given can us I, a can- yeah. Go on, Mike. Sorry, can I just say quickly? I think earlier on I called I called Tony Morley, Tony Mortimer, um, Tony Morley, <laughs> and Dennis Mortimer were not in East Seventeen. I'll just clar- I'll just clarify that. For Although them. we we did wish that Gary Shaw would stay another day, don't we? Yes. Oh, oh, come on, now, now we really do need to end. So that brings us to the end of part one. We will go into detail about the season itself. We've gone through the team in some detail, which is, was really, really good. We'll, we'll talk about the season itself and the subsequent European season and all the shenanigans with Ron Saunders um, in part two. Take care, everybody, and we'll speak to you soon. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.